Mighty Lord and Everlasting Father, we come before you as we begin to dive into this topic of your saving power in election. We ask, O oh God, that you would illuminate our heart and mind, knowing full well that most people don't like this doctrine. We ask, O oh God, that you would grant to us strength, that you would grant to us your grace and mercy, that you would help us, O oh God, to understand the scriptures as they are so laid out in Genesis 25 between Jacob and Esau. We ask, Lord, that you would do this this morning and each week as we study this. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to read chapter 25 of Genesis. Follow along with me. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan, and the sons of Dedan were Ashuram, Ledeshim, and Lemuman. And the sons of Midian were Ephat, Ephar, Hanok, Abadah, and Eldah. And these were the children of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac, but Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. And his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Ahath. There Abraham was buried in Sarah's wife. And it came to pass, after the death of Abraham, that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac dwelt at Beer Lahiroi. Now this is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. And these were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael, Nebajoth, then Kedar, Adbeel, Mibsem, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadar, Tima, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedema. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements. Twelve princes according to their nations. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years, and he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. They dwelt from Havilah, as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt, as you go towards Assyria. He died in the presence of all his brethren. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel the Syrian of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban the Syrian. Now Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So when her days were fulfilled for her to give birth, indeed there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, he was like a hairy garment all over, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out, and his hand took hold of Esau's heel. 
so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a mild man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now Jacob cooked stew, and Esau came in from the field, and he was weary. And Esau said to Jacob, Please feed me with that same red stew, for I am weary. Therefore, his name was called Edom. But Jacob said, Sell me your birthright as of this day. And Esau said, Look, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me as of this day. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and stew of lentils. Then he ate and drank, arose, and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. We find in this particular chapter, the first 11 verses, the genealogy and the death of Abraham. And we begin here, yet it's going to switch over to Jacob and Esau, ultimately through the line of Isaac. And in dealing with this particular chapter, the agenda over the next nine weeks or so is to follow the idea for the Bible places a great emphasis on Jacob and Esau and election and what is taking place, especially in verse 23. And as we look at this agenda that way, it is as if we're going to have one giant long sermon all separated by weeks. So we're going to be dealing with introductory matters. We're going to be dealing with certain words and phrases and ideas. We're going to be dealing with topics. And ultimately, we'll get to some practical application of the doctrine at the very end. But in understanding election and what is happening between these two, this sets the stage for understanding election throughout all of the scriptures. The most powerful passages that the scriptures use for explaining election go back to Jacob and Esau. And there are reasons for that, as we'll see. But the text begins with the ending of one generation and the beginning of others, the genealogy and death of Abraham. Keturah is taken by Abraham as a new wife. He had six more children by her, which obviously we see the regeneration of his body as quite evident. He legally secured the wealth of Isaac by sending other heirs away, as he had done with Ishmael. And then he dies at 175, and he's buried in the same cave that his wife was buried in. Then we find in verses 12 to 18 the genealogy of Ishmael. He is 12 princes come from him, as God so promised, and he dies at the age of 137 years. Then we come to the genealogy of Isaac and the promised seed. Now look at the way Moses lays out this chapter. Abraham, the Gentile, who came from Ur of the Chaldeans, Ishmael, the half-breed, and now the full-blooded Hebrews, Jacob and Esau. The genealogy here of Isaac and the promised seed is seen now through verses 19 to 28. And the same setup that Moses has in this passage is the same setup that Paul has in Romans 9, which we'll 
ultimately get to. Rebekah was barren, and Isaac pleaded with God for children. The Lord heard the plea. He gave Isaac and Rebekah twins. They struggled within her. The idea is they were crushing each other. And she inquired of God why this was so hard. And the Lord said to her, interestingly enough, that there are two nations in your womb and two manner of people shall be separated from your bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people and the elder shall serve the younger. And this idea of servant is to cause to serve as subjects. Jacob, in his stature, will be superior. Esau will serve the greater. The twins are born. Esau coming out first and Jacob grasping his heel. Esau grows up to be a skillful hunter. And Jacob is a mild man, as the scripture says, who dwells in tents. Esau is loved by Isaac because he hunts well and Isaac likes eating good food. And Rebekah loves Jacob. Esau sells his birthright. He's out in the field. He's out hunting. Comes in. Jacob was cooking some red stew, and Esau wanted some. Now his name is called Edom, which means red, marked as a result of despising the spiritual graces bound up in God's promises. That is what he despised. He sold his birthright. Jacob tells Esau that he will give him a bowl of stew if he sells his birthright to him. And this idea is the promogenitor, the right of the firstborn as the promised seed. Esau doesn't really care about it. He despises it, which demonstrates the disparity of the event overall. And so he receives his stew, and Jacob receives the right of the firstborn. Now, in dealing with that passage, one of the questions that comes to mind is, why is this a passage on election, and what is election? Both of those questions is what we're going to answer this morning. Well, Malachi chapter 1 and verse 2, and Romans 9, 10 to 13, explain for us the passage and its concern for the electing purpose of God. Election is the core of the gospel. Election is the heart of the gospel, which is what Martin Luther said. So we want to ask the question first off, what is election? Or we may even use the term interchangeably, predestination. Election practically is the basis of our only hope. You would never really know mercy. You would never really know grace if you think you had something to do what you can do in salvation. Election and predestination undercuts anything that a person can do to be saved. Because it is all by God, it is never by you, it's always to give glory to Christ fully and completely. This is why the Westminster Confession says it this way, God did from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. For our purposes, we're going to define election this way. Election is an act of God whereby, from all eternity, he purposes within himself, of his own pleasure and will, 
to bring a certain number of men unto salvation by Jesus Christ. Maybe a first sub-question of this is, is election a fact or is it made up fiction? Most people today believe that election is fiction. And we certainly don't want to make up doctrines and just believe what the church has believed for all of its history just because they believed it, but because the scriptures teach it. Yet, that should also bring into question something in our minds, that if we are disagreeing with what the church has believed for all time, and have come up with something that's different or aberrant from that, that should cause us to take pause and question whether or not we've got things right. Because God, through Christ, as he is the authority in heaven and on earth, is not negligent in teaching his church the basics of salvation. Oftentimes, total depravity or the doctrine of God are the two points that often break down somebody's understanding of what election is about. They don't believe that man is completely and totally depraved, fallen, affected in every area. Or they don't believe that God is really sovereign in whole. He can't do unless men do, so they think. However, everyone at some level, even many of the great heretics throughout the history of the church, believe in some form or some level of election, and everybody knows at some basic level that God does elect people to salvation in some way. It's just the manner in which they go about thinking through that, that changes what the gospel actually conveys. For example, anyone who has unsaved friends or loved ones prays for them in a way in which they beckon God to open their eyes. They don't say, oh Lord, if it would be good, hopefully Johnny will open his own eyes and hopefully Johnny will come to understand the gospel. They will always say, Lord, please help Johnny. In some way, they're recognizing that they need God's help. Christ, at the very basic nature of how election works throughout the gospel, even demonstrates from choosing his apostles and not others, a choosing. Jesus sent them off and directed them in one direction rather than another direction, which demonstrates election in a basic level. If God is directing them in any sense at all, that is election in some way. This works out blatantly in the book of Acts, as we see when Paul wanted to go in one direction, and the Spirit hindered them not to go in that direction, and rather, after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. In Acts 16:7, were there lost people there? Of course there were lost people there. But God wanted them to go in one direction rather than another. Even on a very basic level, election takes place in the manner in which people go out and evangelize in the book of Acts. However, scriptural proofs of the words themselves abound throughout the scriptures and their synonyms. Election is used 27 times. Predestination is used four times. 
to choose people for salvation is used over 40 times, and there are over 101 derivatives of that only in the New Testament itself, much less the countless times that it's done in the Old Testament. Here are some examples. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. That's 1 Thessalonians 1.4. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. 2 Peter 1.10. And then he will send his angels and gather together his elect from the four winds. Mark 13.27. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Romans 8.29 Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, before him in love, having predestined us to adoption. Ephesians 1.4-5 But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, beloved brethren, by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2.13. So at the very basic level, the words exist throughout the Bible. The definitions of these words are very plain. The word predestined means to decide beforehand. In the New Testament, it is used of God decreeing from eternity and to appoint and to foreordain. Election, that word, is the act of picking out or choosing. It's the act of God's will by which before the foundation of the world he decreed his blessing to certain persons. That's the definition of the word. So when it's used, that's its definition. Elect. It means to pick out. It means chosen. It means, literally, to obtain salvation through Christ. Christians are often called chosen or elect of God. Even the Messiah is called elect, as appointed by God solely to the most exalted office conceivable. These words mean what they say. God chooses people to pick out or choose, to pick out or choose for oneself, to choosing out of many, as is Jesus choosing his disciples of God choosing whom he judged fit to receive his favors. That's the literal definition of the word out of the Greek lexicons. To appoint, to make for oneself or one's use, to set, to fix, to establish or ordain. To foreknow, to know in the sense of to foreordain, used of those whom God elected to salvation or to predestined. In the New Testament, to foreknow is referred to God. It is an election or foreordination of his people. That is the theological dictionary of the New Testament, written by somebody who's not even a Christian. Zodiates even says, to specially consider beforehand that which is done, used of God's eternal counsel. It includes all that he had considered and purposed to do prior to human history. In the scripture, something that is proginosco, or considered beforehand that, that way, is not simply that which God was aware of, 
prior to a certain point. Rather, it is presented as that which God gave prior consent to, and that which received his favorable or special recognition. Hence, the term is reserved for those matters which God favorably, deliberately, and freely chooses or ordains. That's Zodiati's dictionary. These are the dictionary definitions of the words. Unless somebody simply wants to deny that the words even exist in the scriptures, it is impossible to move around these definitions. It's impossible to read the Bible and not come away with a deep sense of the electing purposes of God unless you're simply reading too fast without pausing or thinking. First, in accordance with our definition, election is an act of God. It's not an act of man's will, though man's will will play a subsequent part to it, John 1, 12 and 13 puts the case of man's will being the cause of election to rest. But as many as received him, to them he gave them power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Very plainly, very easily, it is not man's work. The primary cause of election is not the will of man, but the will of God. It is an act of God. But I don't like that. Get over it. That is what the Bible teaches. Secondly, this stems from all eternity. It's not something which God does as he goes along. It's something which is planned before the foundation of the world. Before things were even created, Jacob would be chosen over Esau. Election resides in the eternal counsel of God and is executed in time at a specific point in the lives of those he has chosen. Acts 13.48 And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Those ordained, those chosen beforehand from all eternity were given eternal life. Men are chosen, as Ephesians 3.11 says, according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus. It is an eternal purpose and foreordination. It's an eternal act of God's will, thus all eternity. This eternal act of God's will is purposed within himself. The Apostle Paul explicitly demonstrates that God is the primary cause and act of election, and that the works of men don't have anything to do with his sovereign choice over their destinies. He writes in Romans 9.11, for the children, Jacob and Esau, being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calls, before they had done anything. Before they were even conceived. God had already chosen. Jacob was loved of God, not because he had done any works deserving that love. Esau was rejected of God, not because he had done evil, for it was not anything good or evil that caused God to choose Jacob or reject Esau. It was God's choice. It was his sovereignty over their lives, which is why Paul will quote the Old Testament and understanding that basic idea, Malachi 1, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Not Jacob's sins, not Esau's sins. Jacob, Esau, the person, 
Jacob he loved, Esau he hated. But doesn't God love everyone? Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. His glorification in their election was the primary cause of his choosing. It was not an external compulsion of Jacob's good works, which God saw and then chose him as a result of doing some good work like believing. It was not a faith he had or would have, but solely God's own purpose within himself. And in the same manner, Esau is not rejected because he sinned or done anything bad. His rejection was a result of God's choice. This choice of God to save some is from all eternity, is purposed within himself, and, as we continue with our definition, it is from his own pleasure and will. It stems from what the Bible describes as his good pleasure. The Bible speaks much about God's good pleasure. For example, Ephesians 1.5 and 1.11 speak of the good pleasure of God towards those elected in Jesus Christ. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined to us to adoption as children by Jesus Christ to himself, according, here's why, to the good pleasure of his will, in whom we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, how? After the counsel of his will. His will is his good pleasure. The good pleasure which was spoken of in Ephesians 2. It is God choosing from his own delightedness to choose as he wills. That is what that Greek word means, eudokia, his delight that way, his choosing because he delights to choose in that way that he wills. And what God chooses in election is to bring a certain number of men unto salvation. The mass of fallen humanity is perilously diving into the pit of hell. Since the fall of Adam and his transgression in the garden, men have lived and died within this lost state, dead in sin. Genesis 6, 5. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That is all people. God could have an all good conscience left all men to die in their sins. They would have gone to hell. And he would have been just in allowing that to happen because men are wicked in all they do. In every intent and in every thought that drives them, God required perfection. You could ask that question to anyone, couldn't you? Do you think that you're perfect? And they say, always, they say, no, I don't think I'm perfect. Nobody's perfect. This is exactly the point. And if God requires perfection, then everybody is in trouble. God required perfection, and Adam did not live by God's command to be perfect. Instead, Adam in his sin plunged humanity into depravity. And on that alone, all humanity is going to hell. They don't have to sin any more than Adam's fall for them to deserve everlasting punishment. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. All sinned in Adam. That is the theological word of imputation. Adam's account was reckoned to all of humanity, and as a result, 
They were all destined for hell. But instead of leaving all men dead in trespasses and sins, God, eternally, by his own good pleasure, decided to rescue some men out of that mass and bring them to glory with him. There's a certain and fixed number of men which no man could lessen and no man could make greater that will be saved by God's electing grace for sure. In John 10, 14 to 16, Jesus states, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father and I lay my life down for the goats. No, for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. There are, in the end, only sheep and goats. And Jesus plainly and specifically says he lays his life down for his sheep. In John 17, 2, Christ prays for those whom the Father has given him, which is a definite number. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to who? To as many as thou hast given him. A specific number. And Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.19 that God knows his elect. Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal. The Lord knoweth them that are his. These verses demonstrate there is a fixed number of those sons which God will bring to glory and ultimately save. The Bible calls them the elect. Election is an act of God whereby from all eternity he purposes within himself of his own pleasure and will to bring a certain number of men unto salvation, but how? He does this by Jesus Christ. It pleased God to choose the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Savior of his elect redeemed. Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. He is God's only Son. He is very God, a very God, begotten, not made, and of one substance is the Father. He was incarnated, assumed human flesh as the Son of God in Jesus Christ. And as the unique God-man, which he had to be, because the blood of bulls and goats will never save, Christ sacrificed himself as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world that God's will in saving his people should be accomplished. Listen to Peter, chapter 1, 18 to 20. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb, without blemish and without spot, who verily was ordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Or even Colossians describes Christ as Redeemer and the invisible God who redeems, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God. There is no other mediator by which men must be saved. Jesus is it, only through Jesus Christ. Acts 4.12 Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven, given among men, whereby we must be saved. We cannot name Krishna or Buddha or anyone else. Jesus Christ is the only one by which men must be saved. 
God's will is seen in the cause of election. Jesus Christ is the means whereby election is executed, and the Holy Spirit then applies the finished work of Christ to the souls of believers. This is all wrapped up in what we call theologically the covenant of redemption. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit covenanting together to save men. If God wills the salvation of men in Christ, then those men cannot be anything but saved. Why? God always receives what he desires. Does God ever get what he doesn't desire? Never. The work of Jesus Christ is effectual unto salvation because of what he did, not because what men do. So God gets his desire, and Jesus fulfills the desire of God, covenanted with the Father in the power of the Spirit. The Spirit then takes that, applies it, and thus the required result is given. Men are saved, and God is glorified in the work of the Messiah. Because God, in that covenant, is actively pursuing his glory in the salvation of men. That is why he does it. Men are a far second cry for the primary purpose of God's glorification. Why did God create the world? Well, because God was lonely and he needed companionship. And so men provided the, the silliness that people think up that way. His will and intention is seen in the way that he elects. Because election is immediately related to God's ultimate purpose as a subordinate end to God's glorification. It establishes his desire to ratify his decree in time in the lives of men. Because it glorifies him and his glory is his primary goal. Election is very clearly seen in that activity the activity of his will. Election is the outworking of the power of God. In full orb of the Father's decree to save, the Son's willingness to procure that salvation, and the Holy Spirit is the one who applies it. If God desires to save from the foundation of the world, then men must be of necessity saved. Not might be or possibly. Those who are redeemed cannot be anything but redeemed since God's will wills their salvation and actually saves them in a moment in time. Exodus 33, 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, that is Moses, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God will be merciful, God will be gracious. That is his desire, that is his intention. And thus his will, his desire or intention is the choosing power of what he decides. In Deuteronomy 7, 6-8, we see the choosing power of God. His intention is founded in his love for a people that have not earned anything, much less his love. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all the people that are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you or choose you because you are more in number than any people, for ye were the fewest of all people, but because the Lord loved you. It wasn't because they forechose him and so he looked down the quarter of time and decided to choose them based on their choice of him. They were the fewest. It wasn't because of anything that they did. It was because he loved them. 
He foreordained. He foreknew them. Foreknew is equal to love. As Adam knew his wife Eve and conceived a son. Well, how do you just know somebody to conceive a son? Well, it's not that it's no that way. It's intimacy. It's love. Not only is this choosing an act of his will expressed to the nation of Israel under the Old Testament, but it's also to specific individuals. Psalm 65, 4. Blessed is the man you choose and cause to approach you. It's very clear. God's will and God's choice is determinate. It's the cause behind the election. Even in such acts as that wicked men do, this will is seen as the determinate cause of the circumstance, though not the sin. An example, Acts 2.23, describes God's eternal will in relation to the death of Christ. Jesus, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. Wicked men's acts, specifically here, being fulfilled the will of God concerning the death of his only son as a result of his ordained will. Even those acts that demonstrate God's plan, that demonstrate God's will, that demonstrates everything that must take place for election to ensue those individuals which God has numbered, he will ordain things such as the cross of Christ. Not only does he choose men for his glory, but the scriptures demonstrate that he delights to do it. God loves to do it. His delight and desire in this sense are inseparable because election is linked intrinsically to the delight or pleasure God has in the act that he performs because he's pursuing his glory that way. He loves to elect. Only the Lord had a delight in thy fathers to love them. Deuteronomy 10.15 And Paul speaks of his own election as something pleasing to God. Galatians 1.15 But it pleased God to separate me from my mother's womb at birth and called me by his grace. Please God. The epitome of his delight in election in that way is for his elect servant, Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42.1, a prophecy concerning the Messiah to come. The Lord says, behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delights. God is utterly delighted in election. He's utterly delighted in his elect servant into the very depths of his soul. Other terms and words are used for God's election. They create a full picture and use of the Hebrew and the Greek wording to express God's desire and his intention and delight in his election of men. For example, sometimes the word called is used, as in Isaiah 45.4. For Jacob, not Esau, my servant's sake in Israel, mine elect, I have called thee by thy name. God is seen in his electing grace and calling people. Ordination, that word is often used, like in Jeremiah 1.5. Before I formed thee in the womb, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee. And I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. We see the double use. One of the word to know and the other word is ordained, meaning the same thing. To know in that sense is synonymous with ordain. Or the word predestined is often used. For whom he foreknew or ordained, foreordained, he also predestined. 
to be conformed to the image of his son, to determine the destiny beforehand. Who shall lay any charge to God's elect then? Here we not only see the word used, but the unbreakable golden chain of salvation is clearly exhibited. Not one link in that chain will be broken. Those he foreknew, he predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. That will happen with everyone that he predestines and foreknows and calls and justifies. They will all be glorified. The believer who is predestined for glory will one day be glorified. And Paul is so sure in Romans 8 here of the intention of God and the way that that golden chain works that he can say in the present tense these he also glorified. Maybe we can make a little note on the popular view of the word foreknowledge. Sometimes the word foreknowledge is used in the New Testament as First Peter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the strangers scattered throughout, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Or as in Romans 8.29, for whom he foreknew he predestined. Foreknowledge is not detached from the will of God. Though in popular terms today, people think that God is speaking here about what God knows rather than what God does. He knows the future beforehand and so elects people on the basis of what he knows they're going to do at a particular time in history. So he sees Harry who believes on Christ and thus he saves Harry as a result of Harry's belief. But foreknowledge is not simply knowledge before, but it is an act of God's will. What does God know? He knows all things. He tells the number of the stars and calls them all by name. He knows everything. What does God foreknow? It's almost the same question. God knows all things, whether they are before, after, or now. He knows all things in an instantaneous now. All those for whom he foreknew he predestined. Well, if we take that logic, does God predestine all people to life? No, he does not. And if that's the case, how can he foreknow all and predestine all he foreknows? Well, if we take it at that, then everybody's saved and we've all become universalists. But the word does not mean to foreknow as in just knowledge. It means foreloved, foreordained in love. It is the Greek word proginosko which is why I said it is an act of his will to foreknow in connection with election, which means it's an act of his will to foreordain. He's doing something. All those God foreloves, let's make it a little easier and translate it a little bit more specifically, all those God foreloves before the foundation of the world in Christ are predestined to glory. Otherwise, men have no other choice than to be universalists. And thus, Jesus is a liar because Jesus preached one-sixth of all his preaching on hell, that people go there. Take these words, just the words themselves, and see that election itself is something that the Bible teaches in many places. In every book, I believe the only place that is not explicitly stated 
that election works a certain way, or electing grace is seen, or God is foreordaining, or choosing, or doing something in terms of election is the book of Esther. And even in that book, you clearly see the great providence of God's plan unfolding for his chosen people. There is no book in the Bible that you can turn to and not see the election of God working. Thus, even in our passage this morning, we see the disparity of Esau's reprobation in the manner in which he chooses to disdain the wicked intentions of his heart towards grace. He despised his birthright. He despised the promise of God. It wasn't just that he was the firstborn and he was going to get an inheritance. We are not so naive to think that this is just something material. Rather, it specifically crowds around the idea that Esau was despising the spiritual things, despising God's promises, that which Jacob coveted. And thus, as a result, the disparity of the event demonstrates the intention of the caller himself. Thus, God demonstrates his reprobation of Esau and his election of Jacob in our passage. We will speak more about this later, but in just thinking about how election works in our own life briefly, there's great assurance because practically this doctrine offers great assurance to the believer. As we study it, we'll see that assurance is the fruit of understanding the basics of how the gospel works, how Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And it doesn't give those who love the Lord Jesus Christ the license to sin, as some suppose, but an assurance of their standing as a result of the will of God. My confidence is grounded in the will of one who created all things and holds the power of all things in the palm of his hand. Nothing that I can do. That kind of assurance that God elects and really does save those he elects in Christ is something that no writer or poet or hymnist could ever put in words which really bring forth the excellencies of the doctrine itself. My salvation is founded in God and in him alone. And I believe we can be very confident that God elects some men, as attested by these and other passages of Scripture that we will get into, and we will look at the hard passages, and we will see what those passages teach. But we can confidently say, election is an act of God whereby from all eternity he purposes within himself of his own pleasure and will to bring a certain number of men unto salvation by Jesus Christ. And this he does by the power of his will. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we consecrate ourselves to you as you have just sparked a small illumination of just basic words that the Bible uses concerning election, choosing, predestination, appointing, foreordaining, decreeing. Lord, we thank you that you have made these things evident and clear. We thank you, O God, according to what your word says, that we should believe and be conformed to it the word of God, that we might be 
those that the apostle speaks of, justified and glorified. That we might be those that the scriptures speak of, Jacob is loved. That we might, as Jacob, have that which wells up in our hearts to hold on to the spiritual graces and promises of God, which are most special to us. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us much grace, that you would help us to make our calling and election sure, and that you would aid us over these next few weeks as we study the doctrine of election. We thank you for this passage. We thank you that Jacob was more interested in the promises of God than a bowl of stew. And we ask, O oh God, that you would aid all of us to embrace wholeheartedly those same spiritual graces as we study election. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stillwater's Revival Books is now located at PuritanDownloads.com. It's your worldwide online Reformation home for the very best in free and discounted classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, MP3s, and videos. For much more information on the Puritans and Reformers, including the best free and discounted classic and contemporary books, MP3s, digital downloads, and videos, please visit Stillwater's Revival Books at PuritanDownloads.com. Stillwater's Revival Books also publishes the Puritan Hard Drive, the most powerful and practical Christian study tool ever produced. All thanks and glory be to the mercy, grace, and love of the Lord Jesus Christ for this remarkable and wonderful new Christian study tool. The Puritan Hard Drive contains over 12,500 of the best Reformation books, MP3s, and videos ever gathered onto one portable Christian study tool. An extraordinary collection of Puritan, Protestant, Calvinistic, Presbyterian, Covenanter, and Reformed Baptist resources. It's fully upgradable and it's small enough to fit in your pocket. The Puritan hard drive combines an embedded database containing many millions of records with the most amazing and extraordinary custom Christian search and research software ever created. The Puritan hard drive has been produced to assist you in the fascinating and exhilarating spiritual, intellectual, familial, ecclesiastical, and societal adventure that is living the Christian life. It has been specifically designed so that you might more faithfully know, serve, and love the Lord Jesus Christ, as well as to help you to do all you can to bring glory to His great name. If you want to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, then the Puritan hard drive is for you. Visit PuritanDownloads.com today for much more information on the Puritan hard drive and to take advantage of all the free and discounted Reformation and Puritan books MP3s and videos that we offer at Stillwater's Revival Books.